chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4. I'll begin reading in verse 2. This is the penultimate message. Next week we'll finish up and um, then we'll move on in another direction. But it's been good to be in this book for the past couple of months. And uh, again, I'm going to begin reading in just a moment in chapter 4 and verse 2. I read the amusing story that David Jeremiah told about a prayer that a Christian man offered to God. And it went like this, Dear Lord, so far today I'm doing all right. I've not gossiped, lost my temper, been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or self-indulgent. I've not whined, I've not complained or cursed. I have yet to charge a penny on my credit card. Now, as I prepare to get out of bed this morning, I'll need your help more than ever. You know, living as a Christian in this world is not easy. We do okay as long maybe as we could stay in our bed. We would have it all down, but we don't have that luxury. We have to live this life. We have to live this life among people. We have to live this life in a world that often contradicts our core values. And so we need God's power. With that in mind, I want you to look with me at Philippians chapter 4 and verse 2. I urge you, Odia, and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything. But in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any moral excellence and if there's anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me. And the God of peace will be with you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have called those of us who have trusted in you to be your followers. And Lord, as we look today at your word, we realize that there are distinct qualities and attributes that should characterize us as followers of Jesus Lord, these things don't come natural to us, Lord. Our human nature often combats these, but, Lord, we know that in your spirit we can possess these qualities in increasing measure. And so, Lord, speak in our hearts this hour as we study your word, and we lift this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, last week we looked at the characteristics of spiritual imposters. You may remember last week, these were individuals that Paul addressed at the, uh, about them at the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, and they were individuals who really didn't belong in the church. I'm not saying the church is not open for everyone, but uh, what I'm saying is their agenda was not compatible with the church. They were seeking to 
contradict the gospel of Christ. And Paul drew attention to their traits. They were enemies of the cross, he said. Their end is destruction. Their stomach was their God. They gloried in their shame, and they focused on earthly things. These are all negative qualities, of course, that describe those who did not belong as part of the body of Christ. But it follows this week. In contrast to that, what, though, should characterize a genuine follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? I think today, I know today in God's word, we see five things that are character to characterize a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, a genuine believer. Unlike the attitude of that man who was uh, just getting out of bed, we don't have the luxury of uh, exhibiting these attributes in our sleep. We're called to exhibit those in our daily lives and what we say and how we live our individual lives. You know, as Christians, as we go through these five attributes to which we're going to look in just a moment, it really uh, it should whet our appetite that we should possess these more and more. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm not saying you have down all of these five qualities, but I would say today you have problems if there's not a desire that these attributes become yours in increasing measure. As we look at these five today, I want to really picture them as a glove. And you have five fingers in that glove. And each of these five, if you can get this picture in your mind, putting them on as God's spirit enables you to possess these characteristics. The first is mercy and forgiveness. Paul addresses that in verse 2. I urge you, Odia and Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Here in chapter 4, verse 2, we see, compared to chapter 3, verse 2, a warning and an and a, a admonishment. In chapter 3, verse 2, the issue was false teaching, but here was a personal issue. Two Christians, Yodia and Syntyche, were divided. They were divided in the church, and the issue, again, was not theological. It was personal. Now, we don't know the issue. We do know that it was two individuals who were in conflict, we know that these individuals were believers because it says that these women had contended or strained forward in the gospel along with Paul. But they had a conflict between themselves, and it was not good. It was a poor example. It was distracting from the common goal. It was threatening to those beyond just the two of them. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what the division was. It could have been over the type of floor uh, that they had in the church. It could have been over what songs to sing. Paul leaves it without further explanation, I think, to our benefit so that we might understand how it would apply in our day. Paul issues an admonishment here. He says, be of the same mind. Your translation may say, agree in the Lord. Now, obviously, there's some things in the church on which we stand that are uncompromising. Paul's not speaking about that. Obviously, 
it didn't include that because he addressed the issue of these two women not being of the same mind. They should have been working together for the common good of the church, yet they were disjointed. Paul, in effect, was saying, quit the division. Agree to disagree. Don't let this divisive issue hinder you personally or the church corporately. And this was a burden to Paul because notice he says, I ask you, true partner, that's the individual, it could be collectively to the church, but an individual maybe who received the letter, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side. Paul was soliciting help to try to bring these two together. You know, I have a competitive way about me, and many times I try to win arguments. I'm going to be very vulnerable today. And, and sometimes we can win an argument and lose the war. You know, each of us will stand before God one day, and he will not be concerned over whether we're in the right on various issues. He will want to know that we put on mercy and forgiveness. We who have received mercy should be more than ready to grant mercy. We should seek reconciliation within the body. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. It's not saying that we obtain mercy or merit mercy by ourselves being merciful. I believe what it's teaching there is that if we are believers and, who have received, and we have received mercy, we in turn would naturally grant mercy. And so the first attribute we see, whether it be applied through reconciliation, through forgiveness, or seeking forgiveness, is this attitude or this attribute of mercy. We should be growing in mercy. The second thing is joy. If you remember, Paul penned this letter while he was in prison in Rome, yet still we see twice in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice and he's not saying rejoice and and leaving it unqualified but he's saying rejoice in the Lord and, and we can rejoice even through difficulty Paul himself did so sometimes we think joy is is circumstance related if things are going well I'll be joyful if things are going poorly I won't be joyful there was a gentleman named Pierre Telhard de Chardin that's hard to pronounce but I like what he said he said this, he said, joy is the surest sign of the presence of God, and indeed it is. When you see someone joyful, you see someone who's bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Of the nine fruit of the Spirit, joy is listed right after love. Now, a lot of people would say, well, they're not necessarily in ascending order. It doesn't necessarily mean that the second one is the second most important to love. But I would say it obviously isn't important enough to be one of the nine fruit of the Spirit. And, and if Jesus is in our heart, and if the Spirit of God is filling us, joy will be the outworking. And many times, in spite of hardship, in fact, often joy comes through hardship. It sounds strange, but you remember Paul earlier said what? I want to experience the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul himself didn't try to avoid sufferings. He realized that there could be good outworkings of suffering, and one of those things was joy. 
Paul lived a joyful life. He didn't live an easy life, but he lived a joy-filled life. I thought back to this very city of Philippi some years earlier as described in Acts chapter 16. Do you remember Paul was in prison there in Philippi or in jail? And you remember how in a miraculous way the, the, the gates were open and they were able to walk out and Paul was ready to go out but he stopped because he realized that a jailer was going to take his life and Paul valued that man's life more than his freedom so he told the jailer, wait, we're all here. And he and himself, he himself and the others put themselves back under the custody of that jailer. And you remember the jailer was so impressed that he said, what must I do to be saved? He saw something different in, joy, in Paul. Well, we know one of those things was joy, not just love and concern for him, but earlier while Paul and those were still first in prison and in chains, it said they were praying to God and they were singing hymns to God. Now, I can understand the praying, God help me, but they were singing hymns and the picture I have were hymns of faith, hymns of joy, and how Paul's perspective was God-centered. And Paul's joy, in effect, had an effect upon that jailer. When we as Christians demonstrate joy in our lives, it makes a difference. Years ago, I was a student at Hamden Sydney College. I was a believer, but at that time, I was not walking with God as I should. As I began to walk around the small campus, I noticed a group of guys. They were on the cross-country team. But cross-country wasn't the only thing that held them in common. They were involved in InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. I can remember one particular guy, Jeff, and there was a joy in his life. He exuded joy. And God used that individual at Hamden, Sydney, to draw my attention to things that were lacking in my Christian life. And as a result of that, as I reaffirmed the Lordship of Jesus Christ, I realized that he used the joy of an individual on a campus to impact me. Joy is a critical element of the Christian life. That's why Paul is saying rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. He's emphasizing it because we witness for Christ through our joy. We ought to be borrowing from Winnie the Pooh like Tigger's and not Eeyore's. You know what I'm saying here. Tigger was bouncing from place to place joyful. And I'm not saying that Joy is that, but you understand the difference because Eeyore was always, woe is me, woe is me. Someone said, and listen to this, the bread of life cannot be recommended by people who look as if the food disagreed with them. We're to put on mercy. We're to put on joy. But then there's a third attribute that we see as we look at putting on this glove, and that's graciousness. We see that in verse 5, let your graciousness be known to everyone. And then he reminds them the Lord is near. That's one reason we put these attributes on, not only to be a witness, but knowing that the Lord himself is observing our lives. As I began to study this particular word for graciousness, I learned there's not really an accurate English translation for this Greek word. Some say it's forbearance, others say the word means gentleness, still others reasonableness. I can understand why it's difficult to, 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 to understand the definition because it's often or e not easy to translate 
as you look at it, there are three vowels in the Greek language, one after the other, which is unusual. So not only is it difficult to translate, and not only is it difficult to define, but it's difficult to say. But the word actually carries the idea, the root of the word, yieldedness. It involves how we treat each other. Graciousness is how a superior might of his or her own volition submit to someone who is under him or her. It is a dealing with people in a gracious way. Those of us who have received grace, giving grace. Let me illustrate to you an experience in my life when I personally witnessed graciousness years ago. Uh, I was going to a pastor's conference in our state convention. It was in Richmond, Virginia, at a famous church, Grove Avenue Baptist Church. It, I think it's the oldest maybe television program, continuous running television program in, in the U.S., but it's a large church in Richmond, and I'm going to be honest, I feel comf more comfortable in smaller churches, and I feel very uncomfortable when I'm around people that I consider to be esteemed individuals. Well, this particular conference arrived a little bit earlier, and to my surprise, I saw the senior pastor of the church at that time, who's Mark Beckton. He's no longer a pastor there. He's at a, another ministry, but at that time, he was the senior pastor. And Dr. Beckton was talking with me. He didn't know me, and he was interested in what was going on in my life. And so I thought, well, that's going to, and I was uncomfortable. Uh, he's somebody on TV. I was ready to move on. And he said, Rick, I want you to come in my office. And we sat down. He talked for 15 minutes. And here we are in this magnificent building. And what he wants to know is what's going on in Shepherds, Virginia. He said, what's going on in your life? How's your ministry? And then he prayed with me. When I left that building, I felt important. Why was that? Because he was gracious toward me. A gracious person esteems others. There's a prayer that I have read that says, Lord, use me today to communicate value to someone. A gracious person is the type of person that when we're in their presence, then when we leave their presence, we feel better, we feel built up. I wonder today, do people know you as a gracious person? The people in this church, do they, would they say he or she is a gracious individual? What about in your family? But then there's a fourth attribute, and that is peace. One of the most famous verses or two verses in this entire book is found in chapter 4 here in our text, verses 6 and 7. Don't worry about anything or be anxious for nothing, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What is that speaking about? It's this fourth attribute, peace. You know, today being Mother's Day, and we honor you mothers, but in the midst of building you up today, I want to give you a reality check. In my 30 years of ministry, I've come up with what I believe to be the greatest struggle with sin that mothers have, and it's this, worry. By the way, grandmothers, 
the same way, worry. We, we worry over the weight on our children's lives. I, I, one of the funny sitcoms back in the 1990s was Everybody Loves Raymond, and I remember one episode. Raymond, who is in his mid to late 30s at that time, he and his brother in the room with his mother, and he says, Mom, you have always said, Robert and I are your business. He says, what we're waiting for is you're going out of business sale. And the reason he said that was that she was still worrying over him when he was older. We're to replace worry with faith. In fact, mothers, I would encourage you, and for that sake, all of us memorize 4, chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. Be anxious for nothing. Stop worrying. Instead, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Worry is a great thief. Worry is a burden to parents, to, to leaders. When we try to play God, we always lose. It's bringing tomorrow's clouds over today's sunshine. And much about what we worry does not even occur to the extent over which we stress. The Old Testament, King Hezekiah was a good king of Judah. Bob shared this last week in our Sunday school lesson, and as I reflected on that, it, it fits to what we're saying today. Last week was on prayer. Bob shared about this event in Hezekiah's life. He was king of Judah, and the wicked leader, Sennacherib, the military leader, sent a, an imposing, threatening letter to Hezekiah. Upon receiving the letter, Hezekiah did not scramble, he did not bite his nails. He did not lose sleep. But the scripture says that he opened up the letter and he laid it out on the ground before the Lord. That is what Paul is calling us to do here. Whatever burden we might have as a mother, as a father, whatever situation we might have over which we have no control, we're to follow the example of a Hezekiah and lay it before the Lord. When we worry, worry never helps the situation. It only hurts us. But when we pray, we're doing something positive. Mothers, the greatest thing you can offer your children is prayer. Paul is saying here, give your burdens to the Lord. And the result is a great exchange. In place of worry, God gives peace. He says it will guard your hearts and minds, which, by the way, the Scripture teaches us that hearts and minds are tied together like a string. We look at them as two separate things, but really, you know, believe in the Lord with all your heart and, and uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart. These things that we must do with our mind, we also do with our heart. It's our inner being. And the Scripture says that when we do that, when we're not anxious, when we take these things to God, he replaces our worry with peace. And nothing's too simple for the Lord to consider. Oswald Chambers said, get into the habit of dealing with God about everything. You know, as we look at this entire study, it really does come together. Because you remember in chapter 3, there were two things that described the strength of God. Paul said, what? I want to know the power of what or the strength of what? His resurrection. Think about the power of the resurrection. All of the weight of the sin of the world on Jesus, him being cursed and taking upon that sin, but being raised from the dead as he took all of our sin upon himself. That's powerful. 
But then last week we also saw uh, Paul attest to the power of God that kept all of this order, all of this world working together. The subjection of all creation under the power of God. When we bring our request to God, we're bringing our request to the one who has power over death. We're bringing our request to the one who has control over all the happenings of this world. And so he will give us his peace. But there's a fifth attribute, and that's goodness. Paul writes here, finally, in verse 8. This is really his last mandate. Next week, we're going to look at the appreciation he gives to the church for their financial support, prayer for, and moral support. But really, his last instruction has to do with our thought life. He says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any moral excellence in anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. He's giving a command regarding our thought life and how we think dictates how we act and what we say. There's so many impure things that clamor for our attention, so many unholy things, so many temporal things, irrelevant things, less virtuous things. But summarizing all of these wonderful qualities that Paul mentions, he's basically saying this, set your mind on morally good and true things. We need to program our thoughts toward God. And we need to be intentional. It doesn't just happen naturally. We need to set our minds on God's frequency. Even as when we get in a car, we turn the radio station, we choose the frequency to which we turn. We make decisions every day. Am I going to reflect on morally good things? Am I going to set my mind on virtuous things? Or am I going to set my mind on things that are unholy or ungodly? As Christians, if we're demonstrating the true attributes of a follower of Christ, we ought to be focused on the morally good things. And so we see these five qualities. The reason Paul gives commands is they don't come naturally to us. Left to ourselves, the natural man cannot put these on. The natural woman cannot put these on. These are things that God's Spirit works in and through our lives. This past week was a little bit sad for me. The azaleas on the north end of our house began to fade, and I love to see them in April when they're beautiful. Uh, they're so beautiful. But then the early May comes, and they start to wither. Reminded me of the glory of God fading from Moses' face when he came out from the presence of God and went among the people. One of the great things I look forward to in the millennial kingdom and what God is going to do in Ezekiel 47, 12, it says this, defying the natural order of today, but in Jesus' final kingdom, trees will bear fruit every month of the year. While we must wait for such a time, it's true this is. We can bear fruit in our lives continually. 
We don't have to say it's the season to bear this fruit and then it fades. No, these attributes, mercy, joy, graciousness, peace, moral goodness, all of these things are to characterize our lives continually and they're to be exhibited in increasing measure. And what a beautiful bouquet they would be this Mother's Day. Let's pray. Father, as we have looked at these attributes, Father, we confess to you we're a work in progress. Lord, as we look at these attributes, Lord, your spirit within us just places that desire. Oh, God, that I would be more merciful and forgiving. Oh, God, that I would possess joy and peace in my life. That, Lord, I would be a gracious person. That, Lord, I would be a person who thinks and acts in a morally good way. Lord, it's your desire that these qualities be in our lives in increasing measure. And Lord, we know they don't happen just naturally, but they happen supernaturally, Lord, as we yield ourselves to the work of your Spirit. Lord, make us more like you. Make us more merciful. Lord, make us more joyful, more gracious, more peaceful. Lord, make us a people who are morally good in our thoughts and our actions. That, Lord, people might notice a difference in us and that you would be glorified. And we lift this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.